You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In the two days since the United Nations withdrew from the airport, the city has been under almost constant bombardment. The firing has gone both ways since it is not defenseless. But we have watched as the Serbs, in effect, walked their mortar fire across Sarajevo and onto the old town. And then at lunchtime today... A round fell directly in the middle of the main shopping street. In spite of everything, people do go out in large numbers at this time of day. I'm excited to be here with Alex Hasty of Ohio v. The World podcast. Been on the program before. We're doing a special thing here. We're running one of the Ohio v. The World podcast episodes. I can't endorse Alex's show enough. It's very, my history can beat up your politics in, in that vein, if you will. And I think if you're listening to this, you're going to enjoy his. Alex, uh, how are you? I'm doing well, Bruce. Thanks for the kind words. I mean, you were... You've been doing you've been doing podcasts since I don't know four oh five or something like that, and you're one of the first shows I started listening to, um, and so that's probably why my show falls a pretty similar format to yours. I used to call in my podcast on a payphone. That's how old it is. No, I'm only kidding. Of course, we had podcasting, <laughs> and I wasn't even wasn't even the first one, not even by a long shot. The episode we're going to run today, and, and you've been very generous to allow us to have that on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. It aired a couple of years back, and it's about the um, Bosnian War, say the war in Yugoslavia, however one might describe that conflict, more specifically about the Accords, which took place in Ohio, in Dayton. Anything strike you about that episode or anything come back to you that's kind of significant? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's sadly relevant today. You know, this is the what everyone's when it happened in, in 91 and 92 when it started um it was a civil war in in europe uh, you know a, a product of the breaking up of these soviet republics and and the the warsaw pact nations as they go from communist to whatever form of government and you know economy that they choose and people were stunned you know thousands die you know hundreds of thousands of refugees in europe you know how could this happen in central eastern europe I can't tell you how many times, you know, in the episode I talked about how shocking that was. And now here we are 25, 25, you know, plus years later uh, with another, I think, even more serious um, land war and conventional war in, in between two nations in in Europe. And it's just sadly relevant when you said, uh, you know, I went back and listened to the episode. I was, we were talking more about some of the similarities to Syria at the time when we did the episode, but you could really replace Ukraine. The war in Yugoslavia, the Bosnian war we're going to get into in a minute is a lot of times it's described as a kind of this Byzantine, hard to separate, all of this stuff going on. But in the end of it, when you pull the veil off, there is aggression. It might have been aggression yep. in multiple directions, but there were there were a bunch of people who did not want to fight, and they were warred upon, in yep. addition to other independence movements and other things going on. So it's really a story of aggression, cities and places of civilization Absolutely. under attack. And I remember Clinton at the time, you know, when he finally did come to the American people and speak about it. He had to say, you know, this is close to Italy. 
But to be <laughs> honest, I don't believe a lot of people thought that the Croatians or Serbians or anyone was going to crawl across the European borders and attack Italy. It was just close. Now you have a real fear that there's an actual giant country uh, doing some aggressions. So we'll jump right into that episode. You're listening to Ohio versus the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hastie. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 14. And today we're talking about Ohio versus peace. We'll be talking about the Dayton Peace Accords. Our guest today will be Ohio State history professor Teodora Dragostinova. Professor Dragostinova is a specialist in Eastern European history. Originally from Bulgaria herself, she moved to the United States in the late 1990s. She's a wealth of knowledge. We're so glad she was able to join us. The former Yugoslavia is a place that the United States went to war two different times uh, in the 1990s. Yet it's not very talked about. Uh, And I want to figure out why. What was this conflict? Why did it take us so long to intervene? Today we'll spend this, this entire episode in two different places. In Dayton, Ohio, where the Dayton Peace Accords were signed in 1995. And we'll spend the rest of the time in Yugoslavia and the former Yugoslavia. Historians always point towards Serbian nationalism. The wars really between three countries, Croatia on the left, um, the Catholic country. In the middle, you have Bosnia, where a lot of the war took place, where both sides were at war with Bosnia uh, to take over space. Uh, And Bosnia, which is majority Muslim. And on the right was Serbia. All these countries were in the country known as Yugoslavia, following World War I and, and following World War II. But Serbian nationalism has been a part of the 20th century uh, that we're all familiar with. The same goes for Sarajevo, a a city that we'll spend a lot of time in, the Bosnian capital city of Sarajevo, the site of the 1984 Winter Olympics, but also the site of the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand prior to World War I in 1914. The assassin was a man named Gavrilo Princip, a young revolutionary, a Serbian. It touches off the First World War. Yugoslavia has three main religions. And again, the countries we talk about from left to right, the Catholic Croats, the Muslim Bosnians, known as Bosniaks, and to the east, the Eastern Orthodox Serbians. All of them lived in this country of Yugoslavia. We ask our our guests about those different religious divides. So the Serbs, most, most Serbs uh, traditionally have been Eastern Orthodox. 
uh, they became an independent kingdom, actually one of the early cases of nationhood in modern Europe in the early 19th century, one of the first uh, countries to break away from the Ottoman Empire uh, as early uh, as uh, the, the early uh, 19th century. Uh, by contrast, the Croats, who largely inhabited territories within the Habsburg Empire, were Catholic. Uh, and so were uh, the Slovenes, uh, who also became a part of the, um, of the original uh, first uh, Yugoslavia. Now, what is interesting is, because many of these territories had been under the rule of the Ottoman Empire for centuries, since basically the 14th century, and the Ottoman Empire is, as we know, one of the greatest Muslim empires, many people in Bosnia in particularly converted to Islam as early as the 14th and 15th century. So there's a large group of indigenous Muslims local to this area who also predominantly lived in Bosnia. And therefore we have this complicated religious and ethnic makeup where you have the Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, and others, and then people belonging to different religions, including Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, uh, and uh, uh, Islam, but they're also Jews, they're also Armenians, they're also Lutherans, mm. they're all sorts of other religions. These ethnic and religious squabbles in, the, in Yugoslavia were boiling over for years, but in World War II, Yugoslavia is invaded and taken over by the Nazis, like many of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe, and even parts of Western Europe. Um, and as in many countries, the Nazis find a sympathetic government, mostly of Croats. The Croats helped the Nazis, and they persecuted Serbs. It's something that they would never forget, the Serbians. Um, the Croats had a, a, took over the government with the help of the Nazis. They had a checkered flag that they used. It was a symbol for the struggle you know, in the Civil War that we talk about in the 1990s. The Croatian flag would bring back that checkered flag, although they wouldn't have the same Nazi tendencies. Um, that flag would still cause a, lot, cause a lot of scars in the former Yugoslavia. Some 36,000 Nazi soldiers die in Yugoslavia during the war. Um, but it brings about the rise of Joseph Braun's Tito. Tito is the one who helps expel the Nazis. And they don't do it through the help of the Americans or the British or the Russians. The Yugoslavians do it on their own. And Tito takes power. He starts a, a, a very communist nation, a very friendly to Russia nation. Uh, but we ask our, our guest about President Tito. That after the war, it was the communist-affiliated partisans of Josef Broz Tito who managed to ultimately <laughs> liberate the country from the Nazis without Soviet help. Uh, by, the, by uh, developing an extremely sophisticated resistance network and that gave them credibility after the war. So they managed to resurrect the country, to build it up again and they recreated uh, Yugoslavia again as a, as a federal state. But they ultimately managed to create a new system of government which brought these nationalities together after World War II that had torn them apart. Um, so Tito rules from, from when to when, approximately? So from 1945 to 1980, when right. he passed away. Yugoslavia is communist under Tito when he dies in 1980. The world of control that these ethnic, these religious uh, differences, they're really put to bed during the Tito years. 
But in the 80s, as we see the fall of communism at the end of the decade, uh, the world in Yugoslavia that Tito built begins to crumble. We ask our, our guests about the 1980s, um, and we ask her, you know, how all these different ethnic and religious differences boil to the surface. So when Tito died, because Tito, as you correctly pointed out, was able to keep it all together under his firm uh, control, when he died, you have this splintering uh, within uh, Yugoslavia, these republics and, and the leadership of the republics, uh, the different republics asking for more and more rights, for more and more autonomy. And, and this is connected to the rise of nationalism. And in fact, when Tito died, the first explosion of nationalism occurred in Kosovo, where you have the Albanian population, the Kosovars, right, who were now de- demanding more rights after the death uh, of, uh, of, um, uh, of Tito. So what we're seeing is that, yes, we have the rise of Serbian nationalism with Milosevic, but it was part of a bigger trend, a rise of nationalism everywhere in each one of the federal uh, republics of Yugoslavia. The late 1980s see the fall of communism and the rise of nationalism in Yugoslavia and sees the rise of a man named Slobodan Milosevic. A name you might remember, He's, he becomes the Serbian prime minister and he would later become a war criminal. He would die in custody in The Hague in, in the mid-2000s. Slobodan Milosevic plays a huge role in this story, from you know, being a cabinet member to taking over uh, the Serbian state and really taking over the Yugoslavian state, which was headquartered in the Serbian city of Belgrade. You know, despite his staunch efforts to try and keep Yugoslavia united, he would also play the largest role in its splintering. We talked to our guest, Professor Dragostinova, about the rise of Milosevic. He's very, very um, shrewd, uh, very um, manipulative. He knew how to write this populist, nationalist tide. He knew how to mobilize the population behind the fear that now the Albanians are going to take our Kosovo, so we need to come together as Serbs. And ultimately, I believe it's uh, that speech you're referring to in 1987, in which he gathered one million Serbs on Kosovo Pole, this, um, this site of a battlefield in Kosovo, where uh, the Serbs had been defeated by the Ottomans. And he said, "We, I will never allow Serbia to be defeated again. And this was his triumph. Uh, it's a post-Cold War surge in nationalism like we talked about. And it leads to the election of nationalist leaders like Franz Tudjman in Croatia. He brings back that checkerboard flag we talked about and declares Croatia's independence. I want to suggest a great documentary in ESPN 30 for 30 called Once Brothers about this period of time of Croatian independence uh, and their oncoming war with Serbia. It's the story of Drazen Petrovic, an all-NBA player from Croatia, uh, one of the great first foreign-born NBA players, and the breakup of his great friendship with Vladi Divac, an NBA all-star from Serbia. Slovenia, the most European, you know, uh, province here in Yugoslavia, west uh, of Croatia, all the way to the left, the closest to Europe, and the most European, this Catholic province breaks away. Milosevic and the Serbians in the Yugoslav army have a 10-day war, but the Yugoslav government makes a deal and allows Slovenia to become its own independent country. It's quickly recognized by the European community. You know, some, only like 60 soldiers die on both sides of the, in the Slovenian-Yugoslav uh, war. But the Yugoslavians decide to draw a line in the sand at Croatian independence, which happens so simultaneously with the Slovenians. And the Serb-Croat war breaks out in 1991. Everywhere you start having free elections, 
All right, this is sort of like the hallmark of democracy. We are now going to be able to vote for our election for our politicians. We don't need to just have appointed communists anymore. So you have elections in each one of the federal republics of Yugoslavia, and these elections bring to power nationalists. It's the case in Serbia, it's the case in Croatia, it's the case in Slovenia. Everywhere you have this tide. And this is what triggered this referenda in both Slovenia and Croatia that declared independence, right? Uh, and ultimately led to the disintegration of uh, Yugoslavia. As Alex's guest says, Slobodan Milosevic was one of the was an excellent politician. He David Halberstam in his book describes him as a chameleon, um, just able to realize what people want and give that to them in order to acquire power, uh, which would be what politics is if we weren't talking about war and violence here. There is an American attempt to to try to look at things here in 1990-1991. Lawrence Eagleburger is actually a former diplomat in Belgrade. He knows people. He knows Milosevic. And he comes to Yugoslavia and meets not only with Milosevic, but unprecedented for the time, he makes a point of meeting with all the various ethnic groups. But Milosevic, he has found, is a different person from the Milosevic that he knew a young kind of uh, inspiring politician that wanted to modernize Yugoslavia and bring it into the Western world. Now he sees him much more narrowly, much more of a nationalist leader, uh, much more talking about the Serbs and their cause and that they're being blamed for everything around the world. All the problems in Yugoslavia are being blamed on the, the, the Serbs. He gets an earful from Milosevic. He doesn't like it. He also doesn't think there's anything America can do because he knows this country, knows the tensions, knows the scope of the possible bloodshed and violence. He does meet with the ethnic groups, though, and he tells them not to split apart. He already knows his words carry no weight with people who want this independence. Indeed, when a Slovenian representative, Peter Jambrek, from the Demos Party, which is about to win its country's elections, very nationalist party. Eagleburger says, and, and they, when Jambrek asks him, if we declare independence, what will America do? Eagleburger is honest. The um, United States is not going to do anything to stop a group of people who want to establish their independence. So he's making it clear. Word of that spread through the country of Slovenia. It was, in effect, a green light. And others heard that as well. The case of Serbia is very interesting. So Serbia um, uh, uh, is at the center of the federation, but also it is Serbs who control the federal army, the Yugoslav army. It is Serbian generals who are basically in charge of the all-Yugoslav army. So the all Yugoslav army becomes a tool for Serbian nationalism. They're riding the tide of Serbian nationalism because they're ultimately saying, well, we want to keep Yugoslavia together because they're all of these Serbs in Croatia. They're all of these Serbs in Bosnia. We need to protect them. And this is why they think they have the legitimacy to send the Yugoslav army to protect the Serbs because they're protecting supposedly um, the integrity of Yugoslavia, but is ultimately uh, a Serbian nationalist movement. 
The war between Croatia and Serbia grows violent right away. Bosnia, which is in between the two countries and has a large number of Bosnian Croats and Bosnian Serbs, becomes the major battleground. There's condemnation from the United States and the United Nations and Europe, but there's very little involvement. But why not? It's a European war, a European ground and air war. It's clear that ethnic cleansing is taking place, civilians being killed by the hundreds and even thousands. But the U.S. doesn't get involved. We're going to play you three clips before we hear from, from our guest. And the first is Secretary of State James Baker in 1992 at the beginning of the war. And then second is quickly from Clinton Secretary of State Warren Christopher, who we'll hear more from. And the last clip, the longer clip, is from President George Bush. It's during the 1992 presidential debate. He's on stage with Ross Perot and the future president, Bill Clinton. And a question is asked about why he hasn't intervened in the Bosnian war. There will be no unilateral use of United States force. As we have said before, we are not and we cannot be the world's policemen. The United States is not prepared uh, to put uh, ground troops uh, into Bosnia in order to uh, resolve or impose a solution onto the conflict there. Because I learned something from Vietnam. I am not going to commit U.S. forces until I know what the mission is, until the military tell me that it can be completed, until I know how they can come out. We are helping. American airplanes are helping today on humanitarian relief for Sarajevo. But when you go to put somebody else's son or daughter into war, I think you've got to be a little bit careful and you have to have, be sure that there's a military plan that can do this. You have ancient ethnic rivalries that have cropped up as, as Yugoslavia is dissolved or getting dissolved. And it isn't going to be solved by sending in the 82nd Airborne. I think this is a great question. I have to imagine that fatigue uh, of war uh, plays a role here. I mean, after, uh, as you mentioned, it's after the first Iraq war uh, and most likely uh, reluctance to engage in another military conflict plays a large role here. To the excellent commentary of Alex and his guests, Professor Theodora Dragostinova from Ohio State University. I'd also add, I am not surprised at all that in 90, 91, 92, George H.W. Bush and the Americans generally did not want to get involved in a Yugoslavian war. Brent Skokoff, Bush's national security advisor, felt that uh, you know, the United States had put a lot into that Gulf War and getting involved in another conflict was difficult. Bush was seen as a foreign policy president. Starting in 1991 and moving forward, you're going to see a candidate, Bill Clinton and others, criticizing George H.W. Bush for, yeah, you're so great in foreign policy, but you're not doing enough at home. But also, we have to remember that it's not just the United States, it's also the European countries, especially Germany, um, in the aftermath uh, of the fall of the Berlin Wall, in the aftermath of the reconstitution of Germany as a unified state. Ultimately, all of these countries believe in self-determination, and they believe that they need to support independence. And this is ultimately what... Um, uh, sort of like um, by supporting the independence of Croatia and Slovenia, the European powers as well, they, they're left without 
any choice. What are they going to do if you're going to support the independence of a country and then you have to let them solve that issue, right? So it's it's a very complicated question and probably, uh, uh, I mean, there's still a lot to be researched there. There's another factor, and that factor comes from David Halberstam's excellent War in a Time of Peace, which is about America's involvement during a time when we weren't really at war, but still seem to have military conflicts. Here's what he says. Thus, a fascinating critical issue which overshadowed the violence in Yugoslavia came from a third country. Not what was good for the people of Yugoslavia, but what was good for Mikhail Gorbachev and American-Soviet relations. Gorbachev was attempting to navigate his way through the difficult, indeed treacherous period. But the question for the Bush administration from the start had been, how far could Gorbachev go? What, in the opinion of his potential powerful domestic enemies in Moscow, constituted Russian soil? And what parts of the Soviet empire could be let go without paying too high of a political price? What would Moscow do, for example, about Ukraine, a part of the Soviet Union, and perhaps even of Russia, that nonetheless thought of itself as historically independent? He's writing this book in the 90s, folks. The Soviet Union, eventually Russia, as far as Bush and the men around him were concerned, was like a baby in an oxygen tent. Yugoslavia is very much a peripheral issue, and in the eyes of Bush's top people, Gorbachev's problems greatly outranked Yugoslavia. But it also had repercussions in our dealing. America could not appear to back a breakaway province in Yugoslavia without setting a dangerous precedent for the Soviet Union and Russia that might also splinter apart. If the United States tolerated the birth of Croatia and Slovenia and recognized them, then we might have to recognize Ukraine as a newly incarnated nation. Yeah, that's David Halberstam writing in the 1990s. You can't make this stuff up. Ukraine is a factor. Got to be careful here. This has nothing to do with the current conflict, just because we're naming that country and there's events there. But it is an interesting factor that it turns out that the U.S. did not want Gorbachev to lose. I mean, it sounds heartless, right? But that is so important to American policy. The gains from ending the Cold War were, were very high. Bosnia and its capital, Sarajevo, become the center of the war. As the Serbians and the Croats battle with the Bosnian army and the militia over the you know, territory claimed outside of that, the Serbians and the Bosnians go to war over the city of Sarajevo. We talk about this, the thin veneer of civilization that we all live under, this idea that, that we are such a civilized people now. But to go back and look at the city of Sarajevo, the Bosnian capital, um, nowhere is, is the thin veneer this, and just how close we are to barbarism and war. Uh, nowhere is that more evident than in Sarajevo. People of all religions and ethnicities live there. It's, it's the ultimate melting pot. You know, the Winter Olympics are there in 1984, held in Sarajevo. 1984. We're talking about seven, eight years before this city is, you know, the subject of the longest siege of a major city in modern history. It's under siege for, for almost four years, beginning, in, you know, in April of 92 and going till the peace agreement's finalized in 96. It's the front line of the war. In June 1992 alone, nearly 1,800 people die in Sarajevo, a major European city, mostly civilians. Many people are trapped by the Bosnian paramilitaries that, that encircle the city, Shelling from the hills, you know, surrounding the city, killed just indiscriminately. There's Sniper Alley, as it's called, on the city's, you know, near west side, 
uh, a terrifying area where snipers would set up in high-rise buildings, snipers on both sides, pick off soldiers, militia members, citizens, women, children, even members of the United States uh, and United Nations peacekeepers. You, know, you look at our, our cover photo, that burning, almost a skyscraper, you know, where missiles and artillery and rocket fire had just been blasted into this building, most likely going after a sniper or just simply for death and destruction. Nearly 14,000 people died in Sarajevo during the Bosnian War, 5,500 of which were civilians. We're going to play you a clip uh, about the siege of Sarajevo, um, about the bombings uh, that took place it, you know, when the war starts and it really goes in full force in Sarajevo in 92, we'll talk about the snipers. And we ask our guest, Professor Dragostinova, about the city of Sarajevo and its tragic, tragic story in the 1990s. In the two days since the United Nations withdrew from the airport, the city has been under almost constant bombardment. The firing has gone both ways since it is not defenseless. But we have watched as the Serbs, in effect, walked their mortar fire across Sarajevo and onto the old town. And then at lunchtime today, a round fell directly in the middle of the main shopping street. In spite of everything, people do go out in large numbers at this time of day and the mortar claimed its victims at random among them. This is the second time there has been an attack of this kind, and it has to increase the pressure for outside armed intervention. Nothing else is working. This was the same street a short time later. The dead and the injured had been taken away. The mortar bombs kept on falling. To say that the daily life of these people is intolerable is understatement. There is no safe place or time. The main street in New Sarajevo this morning, one of the most active snipers' corners in the city. A group of civilians has been hit by sniper fire. Two of them are dead. A policeman lies on a wounded woman to protect her from further injury. Bosnian forces return fire. The UN is on the scene, for this is part of the so-called protected corridor. It's a small incident, only a fraction of what happens in the city at a time of fierce and intermittent warfare, as the airlift continues under gunfire. And what happens in the city is only a fraction of what happens in the country. The truth has never been harder to know than now. The heaviest fighting has apparently been in the town of Garajde, 45 miles southeast of here. According to government reports, 100,000 people are cut off there, including 30,000 refugees, 10,000 of them children. They are surrounded by Serbs with tanks and heavy artillery, who, according to these reports, are attacking. The people have no chance of escape or government forces of relieving them. So Sarajevo is really the poster child for the success of the second Yugoslavia of Tito is the place that is perhaps most successful in shoring up the Yugoslav identities of the population. It's an extremely cosmopolitan city. It's a city that basically you have many families of mixed origins who live together and who don't necessarily see themselves as Serbian, Croat, Bosnian, Muslim, whatever. They see themselves as Yugoslavs and they see their city as the best example of what the ideal of Yugoslavism uh, uh, encapsulate. And this is the importance uh, of, uh, of the Olympics, as you mentioned, of the Winter Olympics of 1984. What the purpose behind uh, the Olympics 
ultimately was is to showcase the success of Yugoslavia as a project and the ability of the communist leadership of the country to create a uh, state, a country, a, a uh, um, uh, basically institutions in, in this country that are supported by the population as a whole. So it comes as a massive shock uh, when we have this, the siege of Sarajevo, when uh, Serbian paramilitaries are actually um, deliberately um, uh, targeting Sarajevo because why? They're trying to punish Sarajevo. They're trying to punish its cosmopolitanism. They're trying to punish these uh, people, uh, the inhabitants of Sarajevo, who are the supporters of the Yugoslav idea because now they're not pursuing that anymore. They're pursuing Serbian nationalism. War's in full swing, and the world is horrified to watch as the phrase ethnic cleansing becomes part of the international lexicon. You might remember that phrase from when you were younger. It's kind of the forced displacement, in a lot of cases, executions of ethnicities from one area. You know, it, this war creates, the Bosnian war creates over 2 million refugees, much like this you know, Syrian conflict that we'll talk about later. You know, the Serbs are kicking out Muslims. The Croats are, are, are kicking out Serbs and Bosnians, uh, and, and vice versa. It, go, it goes both ways. Um, although the Serbians uh, had more of the guns, more of the weapons, and people like General Mladic of the, of the Serbian paramilitaries really do a lot of this ethnic cleansing. We asked the professor about that word, that phrase, ethnic cleansing, and what it meant in the Bosnian War. So you have ethnic cleansing, and actually, even though the word ethnic cleansing is associated usually with the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s, the term ethnic cleansing historically emerged during World War II, when it was used to talk about, uh, when it was used to describe the cleansing of territories that the Croats uh, 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 executed, basically cleansing territories of Serbs during World War II. So it has this very interesting origin. The way it is used by journalists and policymakers in the context of not only, by the way, uh, the Bosnian War, but also the Croatian War, it involves the capturing of territories and the cleansing of ethnic elements that are seen as undesirable for the consolidation of power that the particular ethnic group wants to carry out in these territories. So when Croats uh, want to consolidate their power in Ukraine, in Croatia, they ethnically cleanse the Serbs in this area. And when Serbs paramilitaries are trying to cleanse territories uh, in in Bosnia, ultimately what they're doing is they're capturing territories and pushing out all populations that are either Muslim or Croat because they want these territories to become Serbian at the end of the war. We have evidence that all of the belligerent parties carried out policies of ethnic cleansing. However, if we look at the numbers of casualties, it's also clear that the Muslims are the ones that disproportionately, I believe that the figure is close to 70% of the casualties of the war are Bosnian Muslims. So because the Serbs... Uh, in Bosnia, the Bosnian Serbs uh, of uh, Karadzic have the support of the Yugoslav army. They have the arms, they have the weapons, they have the equipment. They are able to actually carry out this ethnic cleansing more efficiently. They're the ones who perpetuate the largest number of crimes. And in the summer of 1995, 8,000 men and boys attempt to escape the city of Srebrenica in July. 
The general, General Mladic of the Bosnian Serbs, a man now in jail for life as a war criminal. He carries down the hunting down in mass execution in the wooded areas and hills outside Srebrenica of Muslim men and boys. Word of the massacre gets out, and the United States, Bill Clinton, Secretary of State Warren Christopher, they, they can no longer not act. They start talking with NATO allies, uh, allies, but we talk about the importance and the devastation that was the city of Srebrenica and the executions. That is a wonderful question. So this is where we really see the impotence of these UN peacekeepers that we were discussing previously. This is a city designated as a safe zone. Safe zone of, under the protection of predominantly Dutch peacekeepers. And ultimately, when Serbian paramilitaries arrived in this area, the Dutch did nothing to prevent them from separating the population, men and boys separated from women and girls, and taking them in small groups and larger groups to the woods and elsewhere, keeping them in a stadium overnight, but also starting those uh, shootings uh, uh, and uh, ultimately killing, as you indicated, around 8,000 people in the worst manner massacre in Europe at that point after World War II. So it really showed the um, the unsustainability uh, of the uh, way the world community was handling this this uh, uh, this conflict. And what is actually interesting is not interesting, but it's indicative that very soon, so the, the uh, massacres in Srebrenica occurred in July of 1995. It is that uh, a month later, in August of 1995, that NATO forces began airstrikes. That was sort of like the last drop uh, that uh, um, uh, convinced um, uh, the, the world community that something has to be done uh, to uh, come uh, to an end, to, to bring this conflict to an end. The shelling of Sarajevo's central market during peak shopping hours on a Saturday morning has shocked this city. It is the worst single incident, at least in Sarajevo, of the Bosnian Civil War. The market was strewn with mangled bodies, some decapitated. Severed limbs were everywhere. You can hear people screaming and crying at the outrage. This is something which is just horrible. And we all know, like so many times before, that it came from the Serb fascist positions. These massacres is cold-blooded murder made by Muslim leadership in order to blame Serbs. This war is devastating, and you can see some of the parallels to events today. I did ask Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio v. The World, to talk about that. Urban warfare, the bombing of, you know, giant, you know, apartment buildings and, and downtown buildings that you see in this war, so, you know, so closely mirroring. But one thing that is totally different, and, and I should start by saying, you know, another similarity is how long it takes the United States to actually get involved uh, more so than in on the humanitarian end. Um, but the difference I think that's so important here is Russia being a nuclear power, Russia being a superpower. Um, and that's kind of changed the, the dynamic here than, than what we saw in Bosnia, where it was more of a just a hands-off approach from both the Bush 
and uh, Clinton administrations, this is something where we have a hands-off approach out of necessity, not by choice, where we don't want to escalate the war. And, and it, I, I fear how, you know, in Ukraine, you always hear them talk about we gave back our nuclear weapons in 91 and 94, um, and we were promised security. And you see a war of aggression like this from Russia and the United States not being involved militarily because of having a nuclear weapons in, in that country. And it does concern me about how other nations will look at the importance of getting nuclear weapons and how it can be a, a deterrent. Um, and it's, you know, how do you talk somebody out of that when you see the way that, yeah, that yes, the United like States you got them in this country? <laughs> you guys got them. I mean, right. that's always the, the argument of... Um... Yeah, or you guys used them as well, you know. I remember being in high school and listening to the debating team, and they were that was the argument. Should other nations have nuclear weapons? And at the time, it was the 80s. I was like, what are these guys, crazy? And, and by the end of it, I was like, oh, they're kind of right. Uh, the more that have them, maybe we can get some kind of deterrence going in different directions. But uh, I think that, that, yeah, what you're saying is totally relevant there. Look, I mean, another a historical parallel, just to throw one out, I did a series on uh, Neville Chamberlain in Munich. Yeah, that was great. Part of it operating there was very similar. In other words, um, not only was Britain like, we can't do this just for Czechoslovakia because we don't want to lose some troops or something like that. It was also a direct threat to the country, and that was the new invention of airplane warfare and the perfection of it in the spanish-american war they saw what happened to spain to guernica and, and other places and they didn't want that to be london which it it soon would be but when they were better prepared absolute threat i just did one on the um ethiopian and italian um invasion yeah. of ethiopia i just yeah i just listened to that one and this um found some parallels also some contrast of course like you always do but that's another thing um the uh, the there was the possibility now a little more remote, but the possibility that Italy's air force could bomb London or something like that if they went to war, or just bomb naval ships, which they just didn't want happening on the ocean. So or, or submarines, Italian submarines attacking British. So there's always this threat to you know we 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 had a short history of operating kind of as free and clear world policemen, but that's that's kind of, you know, um, the opposite of the normal history. Usually everything you do has potential consequences. So, And uh, we're going to take a break. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. The second bombing of the market in Sarajevo uh, by the Serbians from the hills surrounding the city, it was the final straw. They had already bombed once, killing 67 people the summer before, in 1994. Uh, President Clinton, who already had negotiating teams, uh, you know, meeting with the Bosnians and the Serbs and the Croat leaders, as Welsh representatives of the European community, um, they had been begging the president for sustained aerial combat. Not just pinpricks, as the president of Bosnia says, but a sustained air raid. Srebrenica plus the market bombing, a second market bombing, I should say, that was enough to finally compel United States in NATO involvement. It's called Operation Deliberate Force. The United States leads 3,500 3, different missions, sorties as they're called, bombings of the Serbian positions in and around not just Sarajevo, but also in Serbia itself. August 1995, the United States military comes to the rescue of the Bosnians. Warplanes dropped anti-missile decoy flares as they carried out wave after wave of airstrikes. Flashes lit up the night sky around Sarajevo and every few seconds we could hear the distant boom of explosions as the planes, some 60 of them in all, hit their targets. Air defense and radar installations, command and communication systems, ammunition dumps and an arms factory which created this huge mushroom cloud of smoke when it was destroyed. By dawn, though, the Bosnian Serbs had started to retaliate, shelling Sarajevo, mortars landing close to a UN base. Warning sirens wailed across the city, and its people scurried for cover, their radio station urging them to stay indoors. But even in broad daylight, NATO pressed ahead with their airstrikes relentlessly, warplanes firing their missiles, crisscrossing the skies over Sarajevo, and still dropping their decoy flares. NATO are not only using air power, but also the big guns of the Rapid Reaction Force up on Mount Igman. These British troops were on full alert today after they and their French colleagues had fired hundreds of shells at Bosnian Serb targets. They've been trying to take out the heavy weapons which the Serbs have used to cause such carnage in Sarajevo. 
Right now, once the airstrikes begin, uh, uh, led by NATO, but basically the United States in August 1995, uh, what it becomes clear is that now NATO will be intervening uh, in this conflict. So I do think that they that played a very important role in convincing the Serbs that they should start negotiating. The bombing campaign from the United States and NATO, the increased gains on the ground by Croatians, Uh, and separately by Bosniak forces, the Bosnian Muslims, against the Serbians, finally changes the facts on the ground. It forces, you know, a cessation of the bombing by the Serbs and really a ceasefire after the U.S. bombings for a couple of weeks. A big step, you know, the lead negotiator, Richard Holbrook, Ambassador Holbrook, who we'll talk about uh, in this episode, uh, a big step is Slobodan Milosevic is given power to negotiate on behalf of the Bosnian Serbs. He's the president of Serbia. Um, But this is a huge breakthrough because dealing with the Bosnian Serbs is mostly crazy military leaders, have no intentions of giving up the fight until they've cleared out all the Muslims, all the Croats, all the non-Serbians from the areas. That was a huge first step. Uh, But it's also proof that the NATO intervention was working, that the United States involvement was finally making a change. And one of the first questions I wanted to ask the professor when we sat down was, why was the Dayton, Ohio picked for this? Why not Camp David or D.C. or Geneva or Paris or New York? You know, why the hell was the peace conference held in Dayton, Ohio? But we also asked Ambassador Holbrook, why Dayton, Ohio? Uh, so I believe this is uh, Richard Holbrook's idea. Richard Holbrook, who is the main negotiator, uh, negotiator uh, rep- representing uh, the United States, a very experienced diplomat uh, uh, who uh, uh, tried to bring uh, together the three parties, the three parties being the Serbs, uh, the Croats, uh, and the representatives of the Bosnian Muslims. Uh, and uh, ultimately, um, so the Dayton Accords are also known as the Dayton slash Paris Accords, because as you mentioned, they were finalized in Paris. But to bring the parties together, to be actually able to force them to negotiate and reach an agreement, Holbrook decided that he really needs a location uh, that would not be conducive to anything else but work and negotiations. So a military base made sense, a military base in Ohio, where the parties were not allowed to leave. Uh, And also there is a, a lot of speculation out there that one of the reasons that this site was chosen had to do with the fact that they didn't want uh, the, the, the parties to have any distractions. If you bring them to Washington, D.C. for negotiations, there are abilities for them to get out and, you know, network, uh, talk to the media, um, go party if they wish to, or contact other people. The purpose here is to bring the main parties together at the base and not let them leave before they reach the peace. Most of the people in the White House and in the State Department wanted this negotiation to take place in Europe. The war was so terrible. It was tearing Europe apart. American diplomacy under both the Bush and Clinton administrations had been such a failure. European diplomacy had been such a failure. There was a feeling that um, we took too big a risk holding on American soil. I took the opposite position. We were totally invested and controlling the negotiation, controlling the site, controlling the agenda uh, was absolutely essential to maximize our chances for success. And nine of the ten people in the National Security Council opposed this position, including the Secretary of State. But 
uh, to Warren Christopher's credit, even though he opposed holding in the U.S., he said he would back the negotiator. And he switched. Al Gore supported me from the beginning. And President Clinton said, let's do it in the U.S. And then we started looking for a site. And finally, my assistant, uh, Rosemary Pauley, went out around the country looking. We wanted something fairly close to Washington, but not too close, away from the press, but accessible so we could fly senior officials out here as required. And we had no idea what we were getting in for. And she came back and said, it's right, Patterson Air Base. So we came out here. So here we came to Dayton. It was wonderful. The Air Force did a fantastic job. They constructed barbed wire fences. They gave us security within security. We did everything you could ever want. There could not be, I'm sure Wolfgang Ishing would agree, it's not possible to conceive of better negotiating situation. As the negotiations get underway in October of 1995, it's a process that's supposed to be only a couple of weeks. They basically set a 17-day limit, and that's extended to 20, and then to 21 days, which is the final amount of time it would take. But the progress is incredibly slow going. The Bosnian land is going to be split up. The country of Bosnia will exist, but its former land is going to be shared. The challenge is making a map of those controlled areas at the time of the ceasefire and making sure a settlement can be reached. The Bosnians demand that they have 51% of the land. You know, I love maps. I love just looking at maps. I've been that way. I can look at maps for hours, even when I was a kid. But maps play a huge role in the Dayton Peace Accords. And not just maps, but digital maps. The kind of Google Earth ways, you know, type maps that we now carry around in our pockets. In 1995, that technology was really only wielded by the U.S. government. We brought a friend in the show, Eric Labeo, a friend, a listener, an old high school friend of mine, uh, who's a GIS consultant, a modern cartographer. We talked to Eric about the importance of mapping uh, in the Dayton Peace Accords and how it helped lead to peace in Ohio. Yeah, oh, it's, it's huge. I mean, at the time, you've got to think there really isn't the ability to update maps quickly. You know, at this time, this is when GIS, you know, digital cartography is coming into form. Um, at, before that time, you're dealing with paper maps, um, it's something that would take a, a lot of manual, artistic, you know, very labor intensive. Um, and, and how do you measure things when you're dealing with paper? You know, it's a time consuming process. It's not digital. Um, so the fact that they could use digital mapping to, you know, at this time is huge. They were able to, in basically real time, and it sounds like a few hours at a time, given the technology, um, measure how much area belong to which, uh, which side. Um, if you, if you redraw the map, how does that change the boundary? How can we quickly redraw that boundary? You need digital cartography. You need GIS to do that. As we talked about these negotiations, were only supposed to be a little over two weeks. They're extended to 20 days. And even at that day, 15, day 16, we're really no closer. There's some breakthroughs. Milosevic, who who does make some concessions here. Working closely with the United States, he concedes Sarajevo to the Bosnians. A huge breakthrough. A truly important move. Um, there was talk of you know a planned partition of the city, a la Berlin following World War II. But an issue develops about the Bosnian Muslim city of Garajde. Uh, this town, you know, a somewhat large town, 70,000, 80,000 people, uh, was the center of conflict. 
but it's a little pocket of, of Muslim resistance, 20 or 30 miles behind the new borders of Bosnia uh, into Serbia. You know, President Izet Begovic of, of Bosnia, you know, he refuses to give up Garajde. Milosevic doesn't want to give it up. It's too far into the territory. We've already settled this. Um, this town, though, is almost entirely Muslim. And Milosevic again relents, and he agrees that if the United States will pay for a road, he will allow a corridor through the mountains to be carved out to include Garaje. Uh, it's a, a road from basically Sarajevo to Garaje to you know, connect it to Bosnia. He gives up some more land, but of course, you know, this undoes the percentages, uh, balances. So somewhere else, Milosevic wants to make up room. But they take Milosevic into the mapping room at Wright-Patterson. The United States uh, Air Force you know, personnel flies him around like a video game. These 3D maps that they used for the bombing of his country, of Serbia, uh, just weeks before that brought him to the peace table. It's explained to him, you know, this is the same program that we use for, for not just mapping, but for bombing. It's something he had never seen. It's like Google Earth 1995 style. And a guy's flying him around with a little joystick, and he's looking at you know places that he knows. Um, it's an impressive display of American technology, and more importantly, I feel like of American military might. You know, we ask Eric about this process of of bringing Garage Day, which really would be a big breakthrough in the negotiations, and also again the role that modern cartography would play. You know, how much power does this nation have, right? How powerful is the U.S. at this point? Look at this technology they can bring to the table. Um, I can zoom in and see, you know, the 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 village that I grew up in. Um, you know, no one's been able to, uh, until that point, I'm sure this is the first time he's laid eyes on that type of technology. So um, I think in two different ways, it shows sort of power of, uh, you know, from the information side, what they can bring to the table, but it also shows you know, I think fairness or openness, it's transparent. I think that might be the best phrase to use. It's a very transparent way to share information. Garage Day and the area of a Garage Day road is settled, like Eric said. But this throws off the percentages. So after they build this road, the, you know, they map out this road and, and we've got a deal. The Bosnians agree. And the Serbians agree. Holbrook and his guys actually break out some champagne. There's a lot of drinking at this uh whether it's Milosevic or, or, or the Croat leaders or, and the personnel, the U.S. personnel. But there was a lot of drinking and socializing done on the base. Um, but they break out a bottle of champagne. It's 2 in the morning. You know, this is the day before the negotiations are supposed to end. You know, the word on the street is that they're not going to get it done. They tried their best, but there won't be peace in Yugoslavia. And they realize around 4 in the morning that they haven't talked to the third party. Remember, there's Croatians here as well. There's Croats, Bosnians, and Serbs. They tell the Croats, you know, a lot of the land that is given back to the Serbians of, from this road really was Croatian uh, land, land that the Croatians had recently taken um, during, you know, when, Ohio, when uh, the United States were, were bombing. And the Croatians say absolutely not. They say there's a zero zero you know, 0.00% chance that this will work. And just like that, it was just for maybe an hour, they thought they had peace, and it's blown open again. President Clinton calls, he leans on everybody, but basically they wake up the next morning and they're all meeting and it's just not going to happen. There's some other differences uh, between the Bosnians and the Serbians that, that cropped up and basically the percentages and the maps aren't going to work. And it's the Americans sit around debriefing and lamenting how close they came. The leaders, Tudjman, 
from Croatia and Milosevic, they make a deal. They agree to leave the fate of the city of Birchko up to international arbitration to be decided within a year. And suddenly they burst in right before they go out there to, to give a press conference to say it didn't work out. And Milosevic breaks in and says, we have a deal. And they go to, this time they make sure they check with all three parties. The Croatians say, yeah, we've, we've got a deal. We don't like it, but we'll do it. The Bosnians say the same. We don't love it, but we'll do it. Holbrook and, and Warren Christopher run out of the room. He says, let's just, let's announce it. Let's have President Clinton go announce it. And by the, just the skin of their teeth, hours left in the negotiations, finally we have peace in Dayton, Ohio. We have peace in Europe. Their determination, along with the presidents of Bosnia, Croatia, and Serbia, have reached a peace agreement to end the war in Bosnia, to end the worst conflict in Europe since World War II. After nearly four years of 250,000 people killed, two million refugees, atrocities that have appalled people all over the world, the people of Bosnia finally have a chance to turn from the horror of war to the promise of peace. The presidents of Bosnia, Croatia, and Serbia have made a historic and heroic choice. They have heeded the will of their people. Whatever their ethnic group, the overwhelming majority of Bosnia's citizens and the citizens of Croatia and Serbia want the same thing. They want to stop the slaughter. They want to put an end to the violence and war. They want to give their children and their grandchildren a chance to lead a normal life. Today, thank God, the voices of those people have been heard. I wonder if we could ask the three presidents to stand up and for us to join them standing and express our appreciation for what they've done in Dayton and our hopes for the future. This was an imperfect piece. There was a lot of power sharing. It's still a very a government that, that barely works now. But for 23 years, this piece is held. Like for one example, you know, President Izabigovic of Bosnia, when they go into the negotiations in Dayton, he wants this land to have nine different presidents. Nine different presidents. They get it down to three presidents. Milosevic was a little less. Uh, he says that, you know, I just want to have seven presidents. Can we work seven? The United States think this is crazy, but they get it down to three presidents. We talked to our guest about the imperfect peace. Because there have been a lot of actually comparisons made between the Bosnian war and the Syrian war that is still going on, and particularly between the siege of Damascus in Bosnia and the siege of Sarajevo, uh, which the world community allowed to happen for that long without intervening. And we see, uh, I mean, heartbreaking uh, uh, scenes, uh, um, you know, still uh, developing uh, in uh, Syria as well. What the Dayton Accord shows is that when the world community has the resolve, it is able to bring parties together around a negotiating table and force them to negotiate and reach uh, uh, some sort of agreement for a peace. That may not be the perfect peace, but still we have to debate, is it better to have an imperfect peace or is it better to have, uh, you know, the continuation of war? So the Dayton Accords end the war. They end the war, the war successfully. 
and actually uh, they managed to preserve the peace for the uh, following how many years do we have? Uh, 25? 23. 23 years, yeah. right? So there is no war. There hasn't been a war in Bosnia since uh, the um, the signing uh, of, uh, of uh, the treaty. However, what the Dayton Accords um, ultimately do is create an extremely dysfunctional political entity. A country that literally cannot function uh, because it is based on the idea of bringing the three nations together and preserving the integrity of the country by forcing the three parties to govern together. So, uh, in the aftermath of the war, we have Bosnia and Herzegovina, which consists of two entities. One is the Serbian Republic, and the other one is the Federation uh, of Bosnia and Croatia. In order for this country to function, its constitution basically mandates that all of the three ethnic groups have to have representatives in each of the political bodies that uh, govern the country. So there always has to be one Croat, one Serb and one Bosnian Muslim in any ministry, in any committee, uh, in, in any uh, political organ uh, that executes any policy. And that creates a country that um, instead of overcoming uh, ethnic ways of thinking actually enshrines ethnicity as the main principle of the organization of that, uh, of that country. And that creates many problems because ultimately people cannot say, you know what, I don't want to be associated with the Serbs, or I don't want to be thought of as a Croat, or, you know, fine, I'm a Bosnian Muslim, but that's not that important for me. I, that's not something that I need to be thinking about every day. Virtually impossible uh, in, uh, under the structure uh, of this uh, new entity that's created. One of the questions that, that historians that I've always asked after I started studying this, this conflict and the peace process, the many failed peace processes that you see from the British and the French uh, from 1991 to 1995. But the real question is, why did it take so long? Why did it take so long to get peace? And why did it take so long for the Western allies, NATO and the United States, to get involved? We ask our guest, why does the West take so long? As a historian, I cannot say that this surprises me at all. If we look back in history, at the one example that should shock us right away is the situation of the German Jews fleeing Germany in the 1930s. Who helped them? How many Jews did the United States take in the 1930s? What happened to these people? They got stranded? No one intervened to do anything about these refugees. There were no plans taken uh, made in order to accommodate them. And ultimately, when the, when the war evolved, uh, World War II, that is, I mean, there's a lot of discussion out there. Did the Allies know about the Holocaust, right? Uh, and why didn't they bomb uh, the, the trains or whatnot, right? So historically speaking, we do see that there is a reluctance of the world to intervene. It is just, those, this is sort of like the nature of uh, uh, basically what the great powers do. And we see generally reluctance to intervene in conflicts. I hope you enjoyed this episode that we relayed from Alex Hastie's podcast, Ohio v. The World. Please subscribe to his podcast. It's a great one. 
Um, he's part of a different podcast network. We are part of Airwave Media Network. So remember that. There's other fine shows. Find them at airwavemedia.com. We asked Alex a bit about his show. Um, so it's called Ohio View the World. I mean, I'm based out of Columbus, Ohio. Franklin County. Yeah, Franklin County. We talk about we talk about the things I want to talk about, but it's it's an American history show. Uh, and the episode we're talking about today is a little more world history. Um, but there seems to be some kind of connection uh, in every episode to someone from Ohio, an event in Ohio, something to do with Ohio. But it we don't want to turn off our listeners in you know Texas and California. Um, yeah. We don't try not to dwell on the, on the Ohio aspect, but there's so much stuff in in American history that's connected with the Buckeye State um, that we're able to kind of use that niche to to get into all kinds of different topics. I mean, we're talking about today, we're talking about the you know the Bosnian War. Uh, you know, we talked about the annexation of Hawaii had a you know a small Ohio connection uh, all the way through you know to you know Thomas Edison is an episode we're doing this year, um, and like I said, we did the presidents in 2027. Uh, seven presidents from Ohio. So there's so much history here that we've we've got pages of ideas, and our listeners send us new ideas all the time. I mean, I, you know, we'll never run out of ideas, and that was a fear I had at the beginning. And so how there's only so much history, yeah. I can cannot agree more that I believe that the Buckeye State is so crucial to history. Um, and that you, it's never an impediment to finding topics or talking about virtually any topic. So Alex's is really a history program of all, you know, an American history program because everything intersects. Like you recently did a season on the presidents and, um, they're great. And it's just, just presidents alone. So many presidents intersect with Ohio. Yeah, so we we did uh, most of our seasons. We you know we do them in seasons and take a break for a few months. But we do normally do about twelve episodes. And like I said, there was seven episodes about um, about the presidents from Ohio. You know your Warren Hardings. Uh, your you know I wanted to make the best Rutherford B Hayes podcast that's ever been made, and I think I did that. You know, uh, I made I made a great Benjamin Harrison episode that I think you were on. Um, that's right. And, and but you found that other the uh, the reporter. I mean, you found experts for all these presidents. I mean, yeah, we had uh, Alexander Petri from the Washington Post was on, and she's uh, she's great. She's up for a lot of awards for a book she just wrote recently. But she's really funny. And then we went to those presidential places too. I mean, to talk about Benjamin Harrison, you know, not everybody knows about him. So we had to go to Indianapolis to uh, to speak with their executive director, who's a great guy, really innovative uh, museum owner. Um, and so, yeah, we we really wanted to make the and they're they're pretty long, but most of them are about an hour and twenty minutes, which is you know a little. We try to make them an hour, but when you're getting into a presidency, especially you know our McKinley episodes, two uh, is actually two episodes long because there's so much going on there: Spanish American War and this really important election in 1896. Um, so I yeah I encourage people to go back and listen to those. I think they're uh, some of our best work. But I mean, if you want to know about Rutherford B. Hayes, if you want to know about James Garfield, we had a great Candace Millard was on for our uh, James Garfield episode. She's one of my, my favorite authors and historians. Um, and, and Grant, you know, we didn't really focus on the war for, for U.S. Grant. We really focused on his presidency, which I didn't know a ton about. But he's a president who's really shooting up the ranks. And, and his 200th, uh, we've got some celebrations coming up here in Ohio, his 200th uh, birthday is coming up so his bicentennial is in april of this year 
Well, great talking to you, Alex. And where can people find Ohio v. The World? Yeah, anywhere you get your podcast. We're part of the uh, the Evergreen Podcast Network. There's a bunch of good history shows on there, too. Uh, evergreenpodcast.com. Or just go to your iTunes, your Spotify, your Stitchers, uh, and look up Ohio v. The World. Ohio v. The World.